With me in the SCANA studio today are Fritz Hamer, who is the historian at the Confederate Relic Room and Military Museum, and Mike Bonner, who is a professor at USC Lancaster, professor of history. And we're going to be talking about a book that they edited, South Carolina in the Civil War and Reconstruction Eras. And it's a collection of essays from the archives of the South Carolina Historical Association. So first of all, gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you. And there are lots of organizations in South Carolina. So let's, let's explain to our listeners what the South Carolina Historical Association is all about. Well, it's an organization that goes back to 1931 with the main plan of bringing teachers of history and uh, professors of history in the state to uh, come together annually to do papers and to uh, critique each other and help promote South Carolina history and history in general. Uh, when you see the organization South Carolina Historical Association, you have a tendency to think, Rightly so, I suppose that it does South Carolina history and maybe South, but it does much more than that. Uh, we uh, have Europeanists, and every year we have a uh, professional meeting in March, and we have sessions, of course, on American history, South Carolina history, but also on European. Okay. And, Mike, how did you get to USC Lancaster? Well, I'm a North Carolinian. Um, after I finished my Ph.D. at uh, University of California, Riverside, I was an adjunct at the University of Arizona for four years, and I eventually came to a tenure-track position at USC Lancaster in 2011. Okay. And you have been an officer in the association? Uh, I joined the board in 2012, and I met Fritz. Okay. There was some talk at the first board meeting that it's the uh, sesquicentennial of the Civil War, why don't we have a book out about the Civil War? And I thought, well, we better get moving because uh, <laughs> the sesquicentennial is almost behind us. So Fritz and I got to talking about the articles that have been published uh, since the 1930s and how it might make a good compilation. Uh, and he and I met at a cafe and started to go through the ones we thought were worthy. Well, and 1931, I think it's interesting, the date, historically, and that given the poverty of South Carolina and the fact that colleges were barely hanging on by the, their fingernails, that a group of historians not only formed an organization, but actually began publishing a journal annually. And this is before what people consider the venerable Southern Historical Association even got organized, and certainly before it was publishing. So it was starting here, and it really was a bold venture. And I think it's important to point out it wasn't just college professors. It was to include teachers of history at the high school level as well as colleges. Over the years, that high school teacher membership has waxed and, and waned, but I know now that you've been really making a recruiting effort to, to bring those folks once again back into the fold. We're really trying, and we also, you know, historians, you know, if you want to call them that, amateurs, that you know, devote a lot of time to research, we encourage them. And we've had a few of those in my tenure over the last uh, 25 or 30 years that come in. And we're trying to try to broaden that base. Well, I think you just say historians, you don't have to have a PhD to be able to write some very good history. Look at the folks in the 19th century. Oh, exactly. Not just in the United States, but in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, it was the Germans that gave us the Ph.D. Van <laughs> <laughs> Ranke and his people. Okay, 1931 is also an interesting date because the study of the Civil War, of course, it began, as we know, in 1866 and went through a number of, of iterations. And there are terms we might use in the course of our conversation, like the Dunning School and what have you, we might want to explain to people about the ups and downs. And let's just start at, not in any detail, but right after the war, you've got people in the North writing from pretty much the virtuous cause of the Union and that kind of thing. And you've got Southern defenders, I don't want to say apologists, but that's what historians would call them, uh, and the rise of the lost cause. So let's take it from there up to 1931. When I was thinking about uh, how to arrange these articles, obviously chronological made sense. But as I started to work on the introduction, I thought, well, 
there's going to be a lot of different interpretations from 1931 to 2010. And I actually anticipated seeing some 1930s and 40s articles being the remnants of the Lost Cause school, rebirth of the Lost Cause, so to speak, in the 1930s with Douglas Southall Freeman and that that whole school. Um, but I was surprised that that was not the case. Uh, I was very pleasantly surprised to see very objective pieces from the very first articles that we looked at. You may notice that I mentioned Peter Novick's book, That Noble Dream, and Introduction. Uh, I, I kind of used that as a roadmap to think about the different schools from the okay, 1930s. Let's talk about that just because not everybody okay. will have read The Noble Dream. Okay. He's just an author who uh, tracked, I think the book came out in 1988, uh, he tracked the, the main uh, schools of interpretive thought from, really he went back into the 1800s, but since we were focused on the 20th century, I thought that was more uh, appropriate since that's when these articles were published. In the 1950s, he talks about the consensus school. Uh, or, or, what, what was the noble dream? The noble dream is objectivity, and historians shoot for it, but we are all trained uh, that we will never attain it, uh, but we still need to try to shoot for it. It still should be the goal, hence the, the dream. But I wanted to make sure that these pieces were not taken out of their context. Uh, and that's one reason I focused on the different schools. Particularly in the 1930s and 40s, historians, through no fault of their own, were writing before the civil rights movement and the rise of social history. Um, so uh, we were worried that we might see a, a wide variation of unobjective pieces in these articles. Well, rather than unobjective, I mean, in their time period, they thought it was objective. Now, I think economic issues, issues of democracy, all of that, and nationalism, all of that was part of the scene. Certainly. And we're, we're all victims of our period, right? We, we all bring our baggage, our daily baggage, to the work we do as historians. But I wanted to put these articles in the context of their larger uh, milieu. Okay. And actually, the first one that we picked from 1938 was a very well-written article about women's aid groups to Confederate soldiers. Uh, it was a fascinating piece. Mm -hmm. um, and who wrote that? Guy? James Welch Powton. So you have the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and then when you get into the 60s and 70s with the centennial of the Civil War and uh, approaching the centennial of Reconstruction, the contemporary events like the Civil Rights Movement and the rise of social history really start, you start to see a sea change in the ways that some of these topics are handled, and I think it's really fascinating. Wasn't there an older South Carolinian, Francis Butler Simpkins, who published earlier than this, but along with Woody, uh, Simpkins and Woody Reconstruction in South Carolina. Uh, certainly, and I, th I think that's 1936, and that was really one of the first books to start to deconstruct the Dunning School, which had been... All right, now tell us, we haven't really met, we've talked about the Dunning School. What's the Dunning School? The Dunning for School is, was, uh, he was a professor at Columbia who was Basically, his interpretation was Reconstruction was a disaster across the board, that uh, the uh, white uh, redemptions who came back in the, uh, in the 1870s in South Carolina with Hampton in 1876-77 saved the South from, uh, what, political economic disaster. And in matters of race? And, of course, uh, we're talking about African Americans. They were not capable of political engagement, and therefore it was important for the white upper class to uh, keep control. All right. Fritz, I think it's important that you mentioned where Professor Dunning was. He was at Columbia University. He was an Ivy Leaguer. So his interpretation of history, Civil War and Reconstruction, was pretty much a national interpretation, not just a white Southern interpretation. Exactly. Yes, very much so. And, and, and his... Uh, Philosophy was uh, transferred to all of his graduate students and uh, continued to be the preeminent interpretation of Reconstruction, certainly in most places up into the 1950s and 60s. So then Francis Butler Simpkins, native of Edgefield County, South Carolina, teaching at a little school up in Virginia, and his uh, colleague who was teaching in North Carolina, come up with something very different in the 1930s. Yeah, and that's something that 
we needs to be further investigated. But I mean, they looked at data, all kinds of data, not just one side, I think, and came up with a very different overall view. You know, Reconstruction was a rough period, but there were parts of it that had some promise, at least early on. And uh, they, they look at the fact that the white uh, redemptionists, as they retook control, used any means at their disposal to put down these what you know radical Republicans, African Americans, scallywags, carpetbaggers. John Hammond Moore has actually used the term greenback scallywags because there were any number of merchants in South Carolina of prominent families who were more than willing to make money off the Reconstruction regime. Oh no, no doubt about it. No doubt um, about it. So Simpkins saw a different way of looking at the data. And I think he also went beyond some of what Dunning was looking at to determine that, uh, you know, Reconstruction was a much more complicated period than Dunning would have us believe in his students. And, and Mike, if I remember correctly, Simpkins and Woody were very, I don't want to say enamored, but they focused in on the Constitution of 1868 and its contributions to South Carolina. And one of the things people forget, of course, now Simpkins knew this after having done his work on Tillman, and that is that there's more of the 1868 Constitution and the 1895 Constitution than people want to admit. Mm -hmm. uh, and the 1868 Constitution was taken almost totally from the Ohio Constitution. So hmm. the Constitution of which we still live, uh, it's pretty much grounded in the Midwest. <laughs> That's where it came from. How ironic. Huh? Okay, so we got Mr. Dunning. And I must say, as, as an undergraduate in the early 1960s, even when you looked at general American histories like uh, Morrison and Cominger, their interpretation of the Civil War and Reconstruction is still semi-Dunning-esque, if I can say that. that was, it passed over the whole question of any positive good. And, and they really wanted to get out of the Civil War as quickly as they could and get into industrialization. Mm -hmm. But that began to change, certainly in the 60s. But it, in the, some of the essays here, it began to change in South Carolina before then. Fruits. Yeah, there's a more objective, well... Quit using the term objective. Good okay. point. There is a different way of looking at Reconstruction that uh, we begin to see in the 50s. And some of these articles in the 1960s that we've republished, uh, Robert Moore... Robert Moore, for many years, professor of history at Columbia College. Yes, uh, and a longtime member of the association. But uh, he, in the 60s, is looking at these issues in a different light than uh, the Nadunnites. And looking at, for example, how Andrew Johnson's presidency and its interpretation uh, has changed from almost the time he left office into the 1960s, you know, from uh, one of n total negativity as, as a terrible president to uh, historians in the 20s looking at him as a more, in a more positive light, as someone who was trying to rehabilitate the South and, and bring him back in, and then to the 60s where he's turning into another villain in the minds of most historians at the yeah. time. Okay, let's have some other examples. The one essay that really caught my attention is Larry Ware's article on Isaac Hayne and the Executive Council, which ran South Carolina in the early years of the war, doesn't have a lot of friends. I mean, if you believe in states' rights and all of that, the Executive Council was the dictatorship of five men. Mike? Uh, really four men, because they were very concerned about Francis Pickens. But it is sort of a, I don't want to say like a French Revolution, uh, Triumphant. Yeah, right, um, that ran the state in response to the military uh, success in Port Royal in November of 1861. The state was threatened, and well, they well, I mean, but you also got things that had nothing to do with that. You know, the Great Fire in Charleston got tossed in as a, as an example, example of bad government. But remember, this is a government that actually was going to do a census of household silverware gold, jewelry, that kind of thing, wanted to have a passport to go from Charleston to Columbia, Greenville to, you know. I mean, South Carolina seceded on individual rights, and wow, this group comes right in. Um, I've found in some other cases, too, that South Carolina was the leader in some rather authoritarian uh, well, I mean, ideas as well. Uh, South well, Carolina had a state conscription before the Confederacy had right. conscription. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know why they had to have it, don't you? It's because they couldn't fill their volunteer quotas. But the, the Confederate model was largely based on South Carolinas and the, the 20 slave clause uh, that was so controversial in the fall of 1862. That has origins in South Carolina as well. Um, so that that's a great article. There's so many good articles in this book. And, and one of the other things that people don't realize is that before the end of the war, uh, if you were a plain farmer or a planter, there was the agricultural tithe mm-hmm. that took 10 percent. I actually saw a book kept by a farmer in Lexington County, and he was talking about uh, the amount of wheat that he had raised, and he said, 10% for the government. And he actually, I think he referred to it as the government's tithe. Well, I mean, you know, look, look at uh, some of the leaders of South Carolina, like James Henry Hammond, you know, who had been this radical secessionist from very early on. I mean, he rails against the, the Confederate government from the formation of the state and can't stand this centralization that he's been railing against uh, from the 1830s. Well, Boyce and others in the Confederate Congress were leaders of the anti-Davis movement. In fact, most of the newspapers in South Carolina were anti-Confederate. You know, this gets to be ironic as, of course, after the war, when Davis becomes a Southern hero, uh, particularly in South Carolina, we still have the Jefferson Davis holiday optional in South Carolina. But during the war, the people, the whites of South Carolina did not like Jefferson Davis at all. No, no. I mean, Except for Mary Chestnut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she seemed to have a, a soft spot for him, I guess. Uh, but... Uh, uh, yeah, that after seceding and having this idea of a decentralized government, it's very clear if you're going to w- fight a war in, in the 1860s, you've got to have centralization. You've got no hope. And that's what Davis was quickly realizing, and even South Carolina was realizing it. But so many of the radicals who had pushed the South and South Carolina to secession did not want, wouldn't accept it uh, for some reason, even though the reality was you can't win a war in a decentralized fashion. Well, in fact, Hammond fought with the South Carolina government because they were requisitioning slave labor to build fortifications. And he basically, I don't know whether he actually sued, but he was thinking about suing the state government to prevent that happening. And then there's that wonderful story from, from upstate of the woman from the Piedmont Farmer who said uh, they had come to requisition slaves, and she said, they've taken my husband, and they're not going to get anything else. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. So this is coming out. To me, it's interesting, way before the changes in national historiographical trends. Right. Um, It's almost as if some of these articles anticipated the next wave of uh, scholarship. Mm -hmm. We did have a larger pool to select from, so we we did eliminate some from contention. Okay. Well, just just out of curiosity, from 1931 to, to 2010, and the reason you chose 2010 is the wonderful website the association has, everything since 2010 is on the web, so people can look at the articles. That's correct. Um, The others are are published. So how many articles did you have to go through? And I realize you have South Carolina history from the proprietary period to the Depression, but just as a guess. I would say, I mean, we have in here, I should know off the top of my head, what, 24 articles? Right. And we probably started out with 40 that were under consideration. There were some that we eliminated. Now, why did you eliminate some? I can speak to the one that I really wanted in the book, um, but at the end of the day, we were running long on pages, and it was a comparison of libraries, actually, uh, (laughs) between the one that was destroyed at the beginning of the First World War. In Belgium. In Belgium, and a library uh, during the Civil War. William Gilmore Sims. It was in Charleston, but... uh, Oh, actually, that that would have been the South Carolina Historical Society, some of their... Yeah, I, you know, I. But that one was one that Fritz and I said, well, it's it's really about an issue that's not just South Carolina or the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, it was really about preservation of records, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. a great topic, but we could sort of fall out of yeah. our specifics. Well, maybe the association's next book ought to be. South Carolina history and overall context. Well, there's a board member who has begun the process of 
a compilation of the best articles on European history, um, and that one is sort of still in the uh, creation stages. Um, but we were under a time crunch to get this out for the sesquicentennial, so we we made it into reconstruction. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't make it in time for the war. Yeah. Well, the Reconstruction period certainly hasn't had the focus specifically on South Carolina that the war has. No. Um, there is an effort to try to make uh, this state much more uh, focused on Reconstruction than has been the case. It's being headed by uh, Larry Rowland and Steve Wise, the historians of, of Beaufort County, and with the support of the two congressmen who have Beaufort County in their district, and that's Mark Sanford and Jim Clyburn. It's to look at a number of sites in and around Beaufort and the Sea Islands, which were an integral part, not just of South Carolina history, but American history, beginning, of course, with the occupation of Port Royal mm -hmm. in the fall of 1861, which resulted in that infamous council coming into mm -hmm. existence. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's, it's a part of all of our history, and some people don't like to talk about Reconstruction. I don't see why. Um, well, you know, it, with the philosophy that has grown up, especially in the South, but nationally, as Walter's already pointed out, the idea that suddenly that we look at Reconstruction in different light as, as having some positive aspects. And, you know, if some of those positive uh, attempts had actually been able to occur, maybe we've been in better shape now. Who knows? Uh, but uh, I, it's interesting you bring that up because a few years ago there was a you were at that conference up in uh, High Hampton mm -hmm. uh, on ha Wade Hampton and I I had a paper about Wade Hampton and his political perspectives and uh, it, uh, it people were uh, most of the audience you know were uh, Hampton lovers and saw Hampton as you know someone who had redeemed the state and were kind of. If maybe not appalled, but certainly very rather upset that I would suggest that maybe he wasn't uh, quite the redeemer that we have well, not, painted not him to be. Excuse me. What okay. did you say specifically? Well, I said uh, that Wade Hampton uh, was from the, the planter class, and he saw blacks as inferior. I mean, that is what uh, any white planter would have believed, and he could not see uh, African Americans as any more than secondary citizens who, if they participated, they would participate as he told them to. And if they didn't... Well, now, he, he did appoint African Americans to office. He did, uh, but they didn't last very long. They, they slowly were whittled out of this regime uh, by uh, his uh, beginning of his second term. There were very few left in there. Well, of course, he went off to the Senate. Well, he did. He was a sort of runoff uh, by uh, the new people coming in. Who would run Wade Hampton? Well, uh, you know, you have Benjamin Tillman, who's starting to make his uh, move, although he, he doesn't really become a major player until later in the 1880s. But he and people of his ilk are, are making moves to... Uh, throw out the redeemer, the old planter class, and bring in the more populist uh, group of uh, young political people that are, quote, more uh, in tune with what the common man needs. Fritz, you've, you've used the term planter class. I think even in this day and time, we need to explain what you mean by the planter class. Well, uh, the planter class are those people that uh, operated the major plantations in this state uh, that usually had uh, 20 or more slaves uh, who worked their plantations, and most of them that, uh, like Wade Hampton and the Singletons, they owned hundreds if, of slaves on different plantations, both here in South Carolina and in other parts of the South. Hamptons had a huge plantation in uh, Mississippi where they uh, had accumulated a large fortune uh, along with their South Carolina holdings. Uh, these are the people that really control the, the antebellum government. They, they're the economic and political leaders of the state. In Hampton, after the war, I mean, he was a, a great general, uh, probably certainly this state's, I think, uh, preeminent leader in the, in the Civil War. 
And after the war, he is uh, struggling because he loses his fortune. He actually goes bankrupt. He goes bankrupt. Um, and uh, he tries to reconcile in some way with this new regime after some trepidation. I, I, I see him. Um, and he does make some uh, efforts to bring in some of the alternate, the, the, the black uh, political regime, but he's got other people uh, in Gary. Edgefield and Gary. They're, they're absolutely appalled by the idea of any black participation. What, what about the, the idea of the road not taken with Wade Hampton? There are three excellent articles in this book that all deal with Wade Hampton and the election of 1876. Um, one of them is from Fritz. Uh, so you've heard his take on it already. There are two others. Uh, one deals with Governor uh, Chamberlain, the outgoing Republican governor. And the third is a, a kind of a history of the culture of the ballot box in 1876. And that one is real interesting as well. Um, so that kind of is a historiographical section in and of itself of South Carolina at the end of Reconstruction, uh, in particular dealing with Wade Hampton's gubernatorial uh, race. Yeah, I mean, Chamberlain is a fascinating character. I mean, he's a native of Ohio. He was an officer in the Union Army, and he comes down here. And, and from what I can understand, he had some ideals. He was hoping to uh, bring both uh, race groups of people together, and uh, he was unable he just couldn't succeed because the, the white power structure just did not want any kind of compromise. And Hampton seemed to be, he represented that uh, old school that wanted to retake the, uh, the political system and more or less return it to what it had been before 1861. And the national political scene is important to understand, too. Uh, now that I've been teaching Civil War and Reconstruction for over a decade, you know, of course, Fort Sumter's in there, and that's in South Carolina. And then at the end of the class, I returned to South Carolina for the 1876 election. But I began to realize I don't talk about South Carolina that much because we're off at Gettysburg and all these places. And that's what this book fulfilled for me was what happened in the middle. Well, you know? well I mean, and you have a, mar a remarkable phrase or a marvelous phrase. South Carolina is the bookends... Mm -hmm. for secession and the end of Reconstruction with the Union troops being withdrawn, Chamberlain leaving the state, and Hampton occupying the governor's chair in 77. I guess South Carolina really is the perfect place for the bookends. The war began here, right? Secession started here, Reconstruction, and, and South Carolina literally with the evacuation of troops, that was the last event of Reconstruction, was it not? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But you've got this very complicated story in between. between yeah. Uh, I mean, this South Carolina during the war is trying to, you know, support it as much as it can. But as, as the struggle becomes, uh, you know, more and more in favor of the Union, people are, uh, you know, food and everything else is, is more and more scarce and, and families are struggling. And they... I mean, there was a bread ride in Columbia, mm -hmm. just like there was in Richmond and Mobile and Savannah. Right. Um, when you read the governor's letters of 18, uh, letters to the governor in 1864 and 65, you know, they're writing, say, we need our husband, we need our son to come home. We cannot continue. Uh, and if, if we're going to survive, we have to have our men folk here to help. And... Well, since you mentioned Hampton in the fall of 1864, his house on Landing Street was, was broken into and anti-war graffiti was scrawled yes. on the walls. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's something. Gentlemen, need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Fritz Hamer and Mike Bonner about Civil War and Reconstruction in South Carolina. All right, we were talking about the war being and Reconstruction being complicated, but the war was more complicated, Fritz, as we were saying. As the war dragged on and the death tolls came back daily, people don't realize that with the telegraph and the railroad, the death lists came back every day. And, for example, in Greenville, where the telegraph didn't always work, the list would go from Columbia up to Greenville, and there was... A local man, when the news got there in the, in the right at the station, he would stand on a platform and read the death list from Greenville every day. Mm. Mm. And 
the casualty figures, which the more research gets done, the higher they go. And percentage-wise, it's almost as high as 20%. I've seen 15 to 18% that's certainly documented. The stories that you hear about, well, Aunt Minnie never married because she lost her bow in the war. Well, there weren't any bows left. Any bows left. And the wounded, and you could figure three wounded for every killed, and the Confederate veterans after 1877, a good portion of the state budget of South Carolina goes for prosthetic devices for Confederate veterans. Mm-hmm. South Carolina is one of the last southern states to form a Confederate home for veterans, uh, but they're they start cropping up in the 1870s in Richmond and Louisiana. And uh, these are destitute veterans. You're, you, if you uh, have an income, you're not going to be allowed generally into these places. But these are supported by the state for destitute veterans. And it's a small part of, of showing the devastation of this conflict. It, it lasted until the 1950s. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's where Confederate Avenue gets its name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Columbia. And there were, of course, pensions as well. Yeah, those begin in the 1880s. Uh, and they're, they're not huge, but uh, for the day, it was better better than not getting anything. And, uh, and then, of course, vet, uh, widows also. The last, I think, pension handed to a Confederate widow was uh, in the 1980s, I think. Yeah. And since there weren't a lot of young bows around, one of the, and this has been in, in novels, you know, last Confederate widow Mm -hmm. and all of that. Younger women married Confederate veterans because they might be the third wife, but if they survived him, they got the pension. That's right. And remember, South Carolina also had pensions for faithful slaves. Hmm. Yeah. Now, that's an interesting bit. I haven't read a whole lot about that. Maybe you can illuminate more. Well, that took place in the 20s. There were criteria of how that was defined, who who were loyal and they were able to gain a, a gain pension, a, a small, a pension. small pension. Mm-hmm. The other southern-wide issue that you mentioned talked about the the home for destitute veterans, the pensions, the help for prosthetic devices, memorial associations. Oh yeah, those are huge, and their impact is still being felt today. I, I think, in terms of how we interpret this history, both Civil War and Reconstruction, um, and the United Daughters of the Confederacy are, you know, instrumental in making sure that the South gets the, quote, real history of the war. And they begin this in the 1890s. And it's, I think, endemic in just about every southern state right into the 1950s, if not further on. Uh, And what they were teaching or bringing to these schools remains still an important part of how most South Carolinians and Southerners, Native Southerners, look at the war. Native white Southerners. Native white Southerners. Good point. Okay. And, and, and we're talking about the rise of the lost cause. Yes. One of the earliest monuments to the Confederacy is in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Soldiers Monument that's now on the State House grounds was dedicated in 1878. Yeah, but there was one even earlier. I think it was in Darlington. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not sure about that. So, <laughs> Back to the fact that folks seem to shy away from Reconstruction. Mike, you you were in graduate school later than Fritz and me. (laughs) Um, And you were in school out in California. Much interest in Civil War and Reconstruction? Uh, There was. There was uh, quite a bit of interest in Civil War and Reconstruction. My two graduate professors had, uh, one was in economics. My mentor is a professor of economic history, Roger Ransom. And uh, the the professor I took uh, Reconstruction from uh, had a very different uh, view, uh, and he his intellectual development was during the 1960s and early 1970s during the Civil Rights Movement. So he was the opposite, the exact opposite of the Dunning School, which is not a bad thing. But I do think there's a lot of interest in the Civil War in particular, and that's never going to go away. Uh, my students are always like, oh, the war's over. Can the semester be over? No. (laughs) We have to talk about, uh, and what arguably is more important, the legacy of the war and uh, the formation of the modern United States, which does not start until 1865. The war makes for a bloody but neat package. 
Um, Date? Oh, okay. <laughs> in terms of I, 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 historically, in, I understand. In terms of chronology, yeah. uh, it has a beginning and an end. Reconstruction has a beginning, but does it have an end? Um, Eric Foner's great book on Reconstruction, probably the the seminal work right now for this generation of historians, calls the Reconstruction an unfinished revolution. If it's unfinished, when do we get to neatly package up and say Reconstruction is over? My students get very frustrated when I ask them that question, but that's why I ask them that. Uh, have we completed Reconstruction? That makes them uncomfortable, and I think that speaks to why a lot of people feel uncomfortable talking about Reconstruction, because it's very clear that matters of equality, race, whether it's political or economic equality, have not been completely settled. Well, throw the other unmentioned on the table, class. Certainly, uh, certainly. I mean, people don't realize when they talk about Ben Tillman, when he campaigned for governorship, he campaigned against the Confederacy. He laughed at the men waving their empty sleeves. Now, of course, he was, himself was not a veteran. No. That's... Um, even, even though he had a brother who was. He had a brother. He, he always brought up his brother. Mm -hmm. But some of the things he, he said on the campaign trail in 1890 were vicious. These old men always looking backward. Mm -hmm. And he attacked Wade Hampton. And as soon as when Hampton came up for re-election, he saw that Hampton was bounced from the U.S. Senate because that was elected by the General Assembly. So as folks say today, it's a complicated issue. Uh, <laughs> Very much so. Mike, you talked about when you were in graduate school. When I was in graduate school here, uh, the man who did Civil War and Reconstruction was William Foran, an incredible teacher. He used to talk about the three Reconstructions, and part of this was reaction to Lewis Jones talking about the three, so, the three secessions in South Carolina, <laughs> uh, 1719, 1776, and 1860. He said the three Reconstructions, the one we're talking about now, the New Deal, and the Civil Rights Movement, which we were just in the late 60s uh, getting into. Bill Foreman's pretty convincing that certainly the New Deal turned South Carolina around in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Economically, socially, and then the Civil Rights Movement. But, you know, Eric's got a good, he's got an interesting argument. It's a great big book. It's, <laughs> um, you know, I read it. I like it. If you buy it and you don't like it, it makes a great doorstop along with <laughs> South Carolina history. So... <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's it's the complication of the issues that make it interesting, but also today make it a difficult area to study because everybody wants something. It's either yes or no. Right. Uh, Especially in this day and age. Yeah. It's either red or green. Mm -hmm. And you can't you can't tell the story that if you're going to tell the story, you can't, you know, black or white, the, the shades of gray. There are more than 50 shades of gray when you deal with the Civil War and mm. Reconstruction. There are, and uh, in terms of so-called redemption, when I cover that, uh, and each state has a different pattern, but they're somehow similar. Uh, my students are confused by that as well. It's very complicated, very messy, and frankly, Americans don't like talking about these things unless they're forced to. We don't like to have to solve hard problems. We like uh, we like quick wars. We like easy solutions. But life is not that way, and Civil War and Reconstruction teaches us that, if nothing else. Well, it's taken a long time for us to really want to talk about some issues of the American Revolution. But I think that story is, is changing. People are understanding that the revolution was a lot more complicated than just Paul Revere and, mm -hmm. and what have you. Right. Uh, and well, I mean, if you've talked about, I've heard you talk about, Walter, and I mean, here in South Carolina, we had a Civil War. In yes. the revolution, yep. uh, and uh, it, it continued even after the British were thrown out uh, to some degree. And then it morphed until 1808. It morphed into a fight for political control between the Low Country elite and the rising back country. Mm -hmm. to, until they comp they compromised in 1808 on a fairly interesting way to to, to do it, and they and they actually reapportioned the General Assembly every ten years. That 1808 compromise became sacred. You didn't mess with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what happened is by 1860, basically, the planter class has won the state because of the, of the sweep of plantation slavery through South Carolina. And that's one thing we haven't mentioned is the demography. In 1860, 
South Carolina was 60% African American. Mm -hmm. Mississippi had a slight black majority, but no other southern state came close. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all but 10 counties or districts in the state had a black majority, and most of those that were a white majority were barely a white majority. A few exceptions, Greenville was pretty white, mm -hmm. Pickens. But some of those others, uh, York and that area, they were pretty close. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's something that we don't usually think about today unless you read it, you look at the history of the state. And as what, South Carolina was a black majority state until about 1920. 1921. Yeah. So. There's an interesting piece in there about desertion in the northwestern part of the state. A lot of Civil War historians, North Carolina is usually attached with the, the, the state of desertion. Um, but there's a great piece in the book about desertion and the inability of the state government to control it. The dark the, corner. Dark corner. Right. And obviously geography plays a huge factor in that. Um, but there's this, also this idea that white South Carolinians were unanimously in favor of the Confederacy, and that, that simply doesn't bear out by some of the evidence. Well, it, and again, part of this has to do with class. Certainly. And, and you have these letters where a Confederate private was paid $11 Confederate, and by 1863, that almost is what it calls for a, price, a loaf of bread. In your part of the country, in Lancaster, where you are, the Lancaster unit suffered tremendous casualties because, of course, they enrolled as the local militia units mm -hmm. then became um, part, of con the Confederates. part of the Confederacy, mm -hmm. and they went off together, and mm -hmm. I think it was over 20% of the Lancaster that sounds correct. The second South Carolina uh, recruited in yeah. the area, the yeah. Lancaster Invincibles. Mm -hmm. We just got their flag at the county courthouse. And there's an older article, not in not in your collection, on losses by particular units. And I think you're going to find South Carolina units are going to be in those very heavily. Maxie's Brigade, for oh, example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's, and that's that's part of the story too. Um, go, go back to the Piedmont farmer and this woman's trying to manage. It's a farm. They do have half a dozen slaves, and she's interested in survival, and she doesn't care what the government's trying to do, right. and she wants her husband home. Yeah. There are a lot of good articles in there about the regular people of South Carolina, the desertion issue, aid societies for soldiers that communities put together. There's a lot of good information on that. One article stuck out in my mind about the creation of the police force in Charleston oh, yeah. in 1865, yeah, that was fascinating. Uh, trying to use African-American police officers in Charleston. And how did that play out? Just fascinating stories of real people. Of local histories uh, that don't usually get lost. The common soldier brought to mind, Fritz, uh, Tracy Powers' book, Lee's Miserables, which oh, yeah. is about the entire army, but the, the South Carolina letters that he has in there are That's absolutely... Yeah, that is a fascinating read, uh, and it, one of those, he's one of the few that has really delved into that and, and shown how difficult it was for these common soldiers to stay on the line in Petersburg. Well, Mike, you mentioned the, the aid groups. If you want to look at the women's roles, you've got Mary Elizabeth Massey's, Air Sots in the Confederacy of folks at home trying to survive. Well, you know, the other thing that I uh, recently f discovered was the efforts to find uh, natural medicinal compounds out in the woods, uh, forest, that they would bring into Columbia to try to refine because they couldn't get anywhere near what they needed uh, from uh, it locally or from overseas. And uh, there's, there's some interesting material that needs to be explored further in that regard. Now, there's lots more to, to be found about the home front and how the people dealt with all these privations and tried to survive until the war was over. Then, of course, when the war is over, and you've already mentioned the women in the UDC, when the men come back, first of all, they've lost. And today we say of a lot of those veterans who had PTSD. Well, Uncle Fritz came back from the war. He was never right or he became an alcoholic, or, I mean, there are glimpses clearly of what... Severe depression. They yeah. didn't call it that at the time, melancholia. They call, yes, and, melancholia. Oh, no, and, and that's a huge factor in all of this, that it's very hard to, 
to uh, document other than these general non-medical terms that are used in the letters you mentioned. But having to cope with the loss, the women were some of the most outspoken, you know, their actual description of hatred for the Yankees. Oh, definitely. Very Um, clearly. Well, that speaks to, uh, and from the comfort of the 21st century, we like to just look and judge people who have written in the past, but they live through it, and that bitterness makes sense. How could you not be bitter? Both sides, Union families of dead Union soldiers, uh, Southern families who had someone with PTSD or, or missing a limb and were no longer valuable on their small farm. I mean, this is not something that the country could put behind them. And Well, about what about the Reconstruction period in which freedmen and women had, for a time period, civil rights, and then all of a sudden that disappears? I mean... I, no question. And, and, and they are also trying to struggle with the legacy of slavery itself. And then there's a flash of opportunity, which is suddenly taken away from them. Yeah, devastating. Well, see, that was one thing you talked about. When did Reconstruction end? It ended in other states a lot earlier than it did in South Carolina. Yes, uh, Virginia, really before it got started. Tennessee never really had to go through Reconstruction. Yeah. Louisiana? Louisiana, Florida, South Carolina, roughly the same period. Uh, North Carolina, 1870. Alabama, 1874. Mississippi, 1875. There have been some recent historians to say there's a recipe for Southern redemption. There's something to it, but uh, I'm not sure it bears the details out. The The one common ingredient, of course, is white supremacy Mm -hmm. um, and the Democratic Party's determination to regain power. There's no question about that. Uh, but each state does have a different story. North Carolina's story is quite different from South Carolina's story. And then there was the Mississippi Plan. The Mississippi ba- based Plan. Based upon violence. Right. And, and that's what Butler uh, took as a model for South Carolina. Which Butler for it? Matthew Butler. Okay. Another Edgefield person? Another Edgefield man. Um, um, and see, that's you've got Gary, you've got a lot of this violence comes out of Edgefield. Edgefield. And... It was often referred to by other South Carolinians, white and black, as Edgefield, bloody Edgefield. Mm-hmm. All right. This is always difficult to ask an author. Fritz, what is your favorite essay in the book, your favorite article? Um, I guess I, I find Dan Carter's article about uh, the failed effort, or failed Southern to realize you know, how they could not adapt to to the post-war period without going back to okay. the white Let's dominance. remind folks who Dan Carter is. Well, Dan Carter is a historian uh, who spent many years at Emory University and then in his later years came back here to South Carolina. Right. A Florence native. A Florence native whose, uh, I guess, greatest, well, most well-known work is uh, The Rage of Southern Politics about George Wallace. Uh, that's an amazing study uh, looking at the, you know, Wallace and his career and you know its trajectory. It, it's quite something. But this article uh, that uh, Dan Carter did was uh, uh, really looked at the beginning of the idea of, uh, I think, segregation that would eventually become the law of the land and why Southerners could not reconcile the loss well, of the war. White Southerners. White can, Southerners. Yeah. And. Mike, what about you? I uh, particularly liked an article by Christopher Mikau about uh, the bombardment of Charleston in 1863 okay, and 64. Who is Professor Mikau? I have never had the pleasure to meet him. But, but well, uh, He was a uh, Park Service ranger at uh, the Fort Sumter National Site. And uh, we tried to find out more about him, but he's left, he left uh, Charleston. Uh, before we started working on this, and we have not been able to track them We down. did our best to track down all the authors, but he apparently has moved on. I, one reason I like that article uh, a lot is because Civil War historians think they've covered everything. Um, and when I read that article, I was fascinated. Uh, he compare, He talks about the rules of war and the bombardment of cities in the 1860s, what was uh, allowed under the rule of law and what was not. And he he talks briefly about Vicksburg and Petersburg, two of the most famous cities that were under Union siege. He uh, says that's allowable because there's an army 
actually in between, uh, you know, protecting the city. But he says Charleston, when Union General Quincy Gilmore decided to bombard Charleston, was completely against all the rules of war uh, because he issued an ultimatum, either surrender the city or I'm going to open fire on the civilians inside the city. And Confederate General Beauregard says, no, you can't do that. Uh, but I don't think very many Civil War historians or historians of the Civil War in South Carolina realize that that was so outrageous. He makes the point that the first shell uh, killed an 80, an over 80-year-old man on Christmas Day. Hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. How depressing is that? All right, gentlemen, I'm sorry. AT is giving us the wind-up sign. Any last word for our listeners before we sign off? And Fritz, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with you. Well, I think this uh, group of essays is an important look at local history in the Civil War and Reconstruction era that often gets overlooked, certainly for South Carolina. And if you want to know some more about this war from a, uh, a uh, local perspective and also often from that of the common man, I th these articles help tell that story. Okay. Mike? Oh, sure. I would like to just mention that when we say articles, we're talking about an eight to 10 page article. Uh, they're not 40 or 50 page articles. And the variety is what I'm really pleased with. Um, if you're into military history, there's something for you. If you're into social history, there's something for you. All right. Well, Fritz Hamer and Mike Bonner, I want to thank you gentlemen for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Journal. Thank you. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal and learned something. I know I did. I had no idea that the bombardment of Charleston contravened what was considered the norms or the rules of warfare in the 19th century. This collection of essays tells you a lot about the story of everyday men and women in South Carolina, not just the generals and the governors. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.